Welcome to the Consummate Athlete Podcast, where we explore what it means to be a well-rounded, happy, goal-crushing athlete. Every week, myself, sports journalist Molly Herford, and cycling coach and kinesiologist Peter Glassford interview experts and chat through all of your training questions. We're excited to have you along for the ride. Hello, hello. Welcome back to the Consummate Athlete Podcast. Peter, how's it going? It's going well. I'm doing what I like, but uh, I am deep in the uh, redoing of plans and building of plans. Uh, so it's good. It's, uh, but yeah, it's that time of year where we sort of re- go through all the plans we have up on the Training Peaks store and uh, just, you know, it, it, that whole Training Peaks environment, which is going down a bit of a rabbit hole, I guess. But uh, my workspace needs to be <laughs> cleaned up and refined and improved. So it's fun time of year, but it's also like a little cross-eyed. I, I can imagine. So uh, it's also the time of year where the most popular plan that you have is the three-month base period for just off-road. So whether you're a gravel rider, mountain biker, uh, cyclocrosser, you're going to hit the off-season probably pretty soon, uh, even if you are cyclocrossing. I think so. And I think being the consummate athlete, you know, our, our, you, know you, the listener, are probably you probably do multiple disciplines right you do a little bit of gravel you do a little bit of mountain maybe some bike packing so this plan you know we have the individual mountain bike base plan you know general preparation but we also have this more overarching uh you know off-road base plan and it is the most popular it's in the top i think it's in the top six right now so if you've had the plan and you could give it a rating that would be handy uh but yeah if you want to get the plan head over to the show notes and grab the link for that and this one's been around since i think 2014 or 15 i was just going back through all the the data on the the plans and yeah this one's been around but updated every year just Just tweaked a little bit yeah as like moments ago went through i always find little errors or you know clean up it's usually me trying to be more concise with descriptions and you know there's new things like the structured downloads came up only a couple years ago and those keep getting better and better so trying to update the workouts with the latest uh, technology, I guess, if not, you know, simple words. Yeah. And of course, if that plan doesn't work for you or you have different goals, you can always check out the three-month custom training plans. Those are always super helpful, uh, especially if you don't work a normal nine-to-five job, if like Saturday, Sunday aren't your big training days, uh, definitely look into that. Um, but otherwise, yeah, lots of, lots of running. I'm actually excited. I had my first sort of big weekend back after... Uh, you know, almost like a week off after my my bad race at Hurricana and then sort of a slow build back. And of course, it's about to get into a bit of an off week anyway, because we're actually heading down to Kansas for Belgian Waffle Ride, where I'll be commentating. So this episode will be out uh, the 11th of October and we'll be down this weekend. So tune into Belgian Waffle Ride's Instagram on Sunday if you want to see how the races are playing out. Yes, I will be in the van. We're back on the road. And yeah, so we're going from there to, to Bentonville, Bentonville then. Arkansas. Yeah. So we're heading there for I'm going to check out the People for Bike Summit. We're going to check out Outer Bike. And I'm going to be doing a lot of work around Big Sugar with the Jukebox Cycling Team and some other stuff. So lots of lots of fun stuff coming up. I'm pretty excited. Um, yeah, I think I think we're probably going to end up doing next week's Q&A on a bit more uh, sort of goal setting, but I think I'll probably have some gravel talk uh, after being a Belgian waffle. I'm always really just keen on gravel after I see okay. those races. It's possible, yeah, and we'll uh, put that shout out for questions for the Q&A. We have a few good ones, like Molly mentions. There's a, a good one around goal setting and sort of uh, goals are when you're not maybe racing, so we'll tease that one for next week. But if you have a question or, or would like to contribute even a goal setting question towards that one, uh, we'll try and get that in uh, for next week. 
All right, but on to today's guest. I am super, super excited. Today we have Rooted Nutrition's Carolyn Burkholder, MSRD LD. She is a dietitian out of Knoxville, Tennessee, and we're talking today all about intuitive eating, which may be something that you've heard of before. Uh, it's you know, it's it's kind of a, a commonly known diet. I think it's non-diet, actually, undiet, if you will. Um, and it, it's kind of gained a lot of traction in the past couple of years. But I think especially for athletes, it hasn't really uh, become popularized because we, we tend to, I don't know, maybe want like really specific things. And this is mm-hmm. a much more like understanding how you feel, thinking about how you feel kind of approach to, to food. Yeah, and maybe trying to connect to that, you know, the signs that our body are maybe giving us during exercise and, and you know, pre and post as well and, and using those, right? Which I think can be scary in some ways too or, or uncomfortable or not familiar, not intuitive. Yeah, exactly. I think when people think of intuitive eating, you might, you know, hear that and be like, ah, so I intuitively want to eat an entire pizza right now. And you know what? In some cases, that might actually be the correct thing. And that might be exactly what your body is telling you. But it's it's more than just that. That's more like the, the joke about it, I guess. Um, but really, it made me think a ton about really leaning into how I'm feeling during every ride and run. And, you know, okay, even if I'm not feeling particularly excited about eating this gel or this cookie or whatever, like, does my body actually need it right now? And for me, more often than not, the answer is yes. Please eat that uh, eat that gel or cookie on your long run, please. Um, so yeah, it was it was a really really good conversation about just how to lean into that a little bit more as an athlete. Uh, and also, honestly, though, like when when intuitive eating is kind of thinking about like yeah, what you need, even if you don't necessarily intuitively feel that way, it's still about there's a bit of like math and science to it, especially when you're an athlete in the middle of a a hard workout. Okay. Well, let's see what this is all about. All right. Enjoy this conversation with Carolyn Burkholder. Hi, Carolyn. Welcome to the Consummate Athlete Podcast. I'm so excited to do this and get into this topic that we've never touched on in the podcast before. So thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. So what's, what's your story? What's your both like athletic and also, um, you know, how did you get into this whole field of intuitive eating journey? Good question. Um, we use the word journey a lot in this, uh, in this field. Um, so I, my background, um, originally a college soccer player, um, played center mid was super into it. Um, and I went to college back in 2010 before, I don't know if no one knew about nutrition or if I just didn't know about nutrition, but I don't think it was as hot. I don't feel like information was as readily accessible as it, as it is now. So I was, you know, college 2010 to 2014, and I did not know a lick about nutrition. And I had this coach who was kind of your classic 2010 male coach didn't understand how to communicate with women and certainly didn't understand how to be constructive. And so he was often pushing on us. You guys need to be thinner to be faster. You need to lose weight. You need to not be eating this, this, and this, but rarely ever did we receive any actionable solutions or like, what does it mean to not eat badly I have no information to go off of. So um, we had like my junior year, 
a sports dietitian came and talked to like, I think the whole athletic program, I, I played D3 soccer, like I wasn't anything too serious. We didn't have our own dietitian, but we had someone passing through um, talking to us. And she started talking to us about how important it was to fuel your performance. And, you know, we need to make sure we're getting carbs, not only at meals, but also in between meals. So we can keep our blood sugar stable and like maintain a positive energy balance and all these messages that I had never heard and were strongly in conflict with what I had been told from our coach. Um, so I, I kind of went down the rabbit hole a little and started learning about a nutrition in general, be a little bit of sports nutrition. And I think I might've gone, I think I overcorrected a little bit for a while. I think I went <laughs> a little bit too far into being like, quote unquote, really concerned about my health. However, I ultimately did come back around and I started realizing how important it was for women to have a source of information that was evidence-based and realistic, but also like delivered in an actionable and nurturing way. Because just being told, like, I remember my coach would come up to us in the dining hall, like you're 19, you eat like shit. And I, my name's Caroline Burkholder, but I, he called me Berkey and he'd be like, Berkey, nice food choices. And like, just that absolute like public shaming, like not only is that not going to stimulate positive change, it's going to make you like very fearful to ask for any information from that source. Yeah. Not to mention so, there's no like action item to that. No, there's it's no like, action well, item. What am I missing? What, what do I, what should I have on my plate right. then? <laughs> like I have this narrative that I've done this incorrectly. However, I do have nothing to go off of. And I'm also young and helpless and don't know where to start. So I kind of came around, I started in, um, in university counseling, started seeing a lot of eating disorders just by nature of being in that, uh, environment. Um, then went into, like, I got more like intensively and clinically trained to treat eating disorders, uh, joined a group practice that specialized in eating disorders and ultimately opened my own. Um, I specialize in eating disorders. However, like intuitive eating is more or less always the end goal for eating disorders. You never jump right into it. But from there, after I learned this um, modality, I started seeing clients that perhaps didn't have fully diagnosable um, eating disorders, but they certainly had fraught relationships with food, disordered eating patterns. Um, so it just kind of became my niche. And I, it's, I think it's really a good area to be in because I think the default relationship with food is kind of disordered. And so it's very rare that you're going to find someone who doesn't need any guidance um, in that area. So that's kind yeah. of how I landed here today. Oh, amazing. Um, also, I feel like every, every woman listening to this is like, yep, I've had that collegiate coach for yep. sure. It's <laughs> I so remember, funny. Yeah. Like, being told like 1200 calories a day was like my good baseline while training for Ironman and like on a hard day, 1800 total, including like, right. Like if everything. you're exercising for six hours, you can spring for an extra 600. Yeah. Yeah. Wild. Exactly. Calories is like literally what a three-year-old needs. It's bananas when I look back at that and I'm like, and then I would feel bad for eating more than that because I was <laughs> starving. Um, it's yeah, it's it's crazy how how those messages get so internalized. And 
even if in the moment you know that they're incorrect, they still sit with you. Well, you don't have an alternative. Yeah. <laughs> it, it runs thick. I mean, I'm a 90s baby. I grew up in like the, you know, the heyday of Atkins and oh, you just, that's what you grow up with. And I don't know why 1200 became like the universal recommendation for women. But then know. you're like, it's so weird. Why am I binging? Like, why am I binge eating? Why do I feel so un- out of control around food? And it's like, well, let's start with like maybe the fact that your body's in a massive deficit and it's trying to survive. Yeah. Maybe because you're binging is eating 1800 calories a day. Yeah. Right. Like, first of all, is this a binge? Perhaps not. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. Um, okay. So after, after college, I imagine, I, are you still playing soccer or what's, what's your like activity now? No, I forgot to mention that. So <laughs> after college, I got super into distance running. I feel like everyone after college goes through like a marathon phase. Oh, for sure they do. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I went through a phase where I did some distance running, did a marathon, did some half marathons and loved it. Really enjoyed that, but then got I played in an adult soccer league and just absolutely trashed my ankle. Like as one does when they're an adult trying to play their college sport. So I got super injured, discovered cycling because I couldn't run, um, went nose to the grindstone into crit racing for a while, um, had a horrendous crash, shattered my elbow, my shoulder, my collarbone, my whole right side was just out of commission. Um, kind of found mountain biking, um, found gravel again, as one does natural progression (laughs) and then found mountain biking. We moved to Knoxville, which has a massive mountain biking subculture. So, um, I guess I identify as a mountain biker now ex roadie mountain biker, um, did like unbound, the 100 a few years ago, like those types of races went through that phase. Um, and now honestly kind of went full circle back to being like a recreational athlete. So I feel like I went through a, every level of stoke and back. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I took myself way too seriously, even though I like, wasn't that good. Um, and, and now, I, now you're an intuitive athlete too. I really identify as an intuitive athlete. It's funny. I'm, I'm a dietitian, but I'm in school as well to be a psychotherapist. And so I work, but I also am in school. So it, I got kind of sick of always feeling like, even if I ride one hour, I feel like I'm not doing anything. So I actually have re-picked up running <laughs> and now ride my mountain bike as cross training. So I really, so I'm currently training for a marathon again. We'll see how that goes. Nice. Um, but uh, so I feel like I'm just like your classic recreating endurance athlete. Perfect. Perfect. Well, running, I think is just the best one for when you're super busy with life. Cause you can go out and 20 minutes. It's a workout. It's fine. You can wreck yourself <laughs> In a very short amount of time. Intuitively, mm-hmm. you can intuitively wreck yourself. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so all of this leads us into the very important question of, what the heck is intuitive eating? That's such a good question. And I just want to preface by saying, like, I feel like it's intuitive eating is so widely misunderstood and also so wildly oversimplified. So this is going to be a primer, but there is much more to be desired. But I'm going to turn the question back on you, Molly. What when you hear intuitive eating, what's kind of like your byline in your head that comes up? Ooh, okay. So to me, I guess like, 
it's it's a really tricky one because I actually think that I suck at answering this question because I kind of want to give you the like good kid answer of like, well, it means like leaning into how your body is feeling and like uh-huh. eating when I'm eating when I'm hungry and stopping when I'm full, but eating yes. foods that I know will nourish my body, but also bring <laughs> me spiritual joy and uh, yeah. know, fulfillment in that <laughs> along those lines. I, I recognize that it's not all like, I want to eat a pizza, so I'm going to eat a pizza. Um, well, those are all, <laughs> I would say components, but I'm I'm happy you said that because I've been having this conversation a lot lately. And I think the most common conception of intuitive eating, I think there's two of them. One is eat when you're hungry, stop when you're full. And one is eat whatever you want, whenever you want. And those are certainly pieces of it. So if we're zooming out 30,000 feet, I would say intuitive eating is an internally driven framework. However, we are using data from how we feel, certainly. We're also using our nutrition knowledge. We're also using data points that we've gathered as individuals that are just going through our lives eating, but data that we're looking at with curiosity rather than judgment. And I'll kind of talk specifically about what that actually means in practice in a second, but there's, there's 10 principles. So I'm just going to like lightning fast run through the principles. And then we'll kind of talk about like what an example of like an intuitively driven food decision might look like. Perfect. So principle the principles are as follows so we've got reject the diet mentality honor your hunger make peace with food challenge the food police so that's kind of like that food morality this is good this is bad um discover the satisfaction factor so what foods actually make you feel satisfied um feel your fullness so there's your eat when you're hungry stop when you're full um cope with your emotions with kindness so you know having a diverse collection of coping skills rather than just food Um, respect your body. So not love your body. You don't have to think it's beautiful. You just have to respect it. Um, joyful movement. So exercise that's nurturing. We know that people listening to this podcast are training often in a more structured way, but we'll talk about a little bit more about how that can be joyful versus like so austere. And then the 10th principle is honor your health with gentle nutrition. So I think a lot of people get turned off by intuitive eating or just the concept of it when they think of, well, if I'm eating in turn, if I'm eating intuitively, I'm just going to eat Oreos for every meal. Like, I feel like that's actually the most common one, or I'm going to eat a whole pizza. And if we're following these 10 principles, like that behavior is not really compatible with an intuitively driven framework. So if I were an athlete, you are an athlete. Let's be clear here. If I was the recreational pro bike practicer that I am, um, an intuitively driven, let's talk about breakfast, for example, as an athlete, you do have to eat past fullness sometimes. If I have a four hour ride, I have to fuel accordingly. And oftentimes that means ignoring my internal signals. However, I am going to be using data that I have collected over the past, however many years I've been a professional bike practicer. So one really important part of intuitive eating, we do put weight kind of out on the back burner. And that is not to ignore the fact that weight I know is a factor in performance for some sports, especially cycling. However, 
got to put it on the back burner for a second. So if I am planning out breakfast following an intuitive eating framework, I might go through this thought pattern. Okay, so I know I've got this four-hour ride. Historically, if I've eaten a half a cup of oatmeal, which is the serving size on the packet with my one banana and my two tablespoons of peanut butter, because that's what my personal trainer told me in 2015, I notice that I typically bonk circa like an hour and a half into the ride. However, last weekend, I made a larger than usual stack of Kodiak cakes. Like maybe during the week, I do two Kodiak cakes, but I noticed last weekend I did a stack of like three. I smeared peanut butter generously. I put some maple syrup on and I had some fruit. And I noticed that not only was I able to like maintain my power output longer, um, but I also didn't crash and binge after the ride. So that is still internally driven. You're still taking what you've experienced historically and using that to inform your eating patterns, but you're also using like gentle nutrition to inform that. Cause you know, like we know, okay, we we're going to be running on carbs if we're doing a long endurance workout. Um, we know we have to fuel with those. We know that as athletes, we want to be adding some kind of color for just those good anti-inflammatory properties. We want to get fiber in our meals. Hence why we're adding the fruit. It's still informed by gentle nutrition, but we're also taking this information that we've been able to glean through observing the effect of food on our performance. I love that because I think that that really kind of answers any of the, I guess, potential issues that people have when we're talking about this idea of intuitive eating. And to me, like, it's funny because as you listed out all of those principles, it's pretty much everything that we talk about when we talk about just like basic good nutrition. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's actually a lot less of a like intensive lifestyle than one might think. It's not really... It's so interesting because it's so complex and it's so nuanced, but it also is so simple. Mm -hmm. And so one argument that a lot of evangelical dietitians like me or intuitive eating evangelists share is babies are intuitive eaters. Like they don't have any internal or internalized messaging about what they should and shouldn't eat. And as such, like they eat a pretty wide variety of foods. Like, you know, you have your fussy eaters and stuff, but like a baby goes, if they have like only green beans at their meal, they eat the green beans and they get bored of them and they switch to the puff cereal. Like Hmm. a lot of intuitive eating is kind of like unloading the baggage that you've carried about good foods and bad foods and what you've heard throughout your lifespan and kind of trying to start fresh. So it's, it's complicated but it's also intuitive per the name. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I imagine this gets even trickier when we are talking about athletes, because I mean, as you kind of alluded to at that breakfast example, there are sort of rules for the road, right? Like we do have to kind of get rid of the idea of eating just to fullness. If we know we have that big ride in a couple hours, we do need to eat during our rides a lot of the time. And this is actually where I would say I would really struggle with like what I assumed intuitive eating was because I am one of those people that would very happily intuitively 
not drink or eat on a 25 mile run. Uh, intuitively, I just don't want to. <laughs> don't need to. Body's not telling me to. Yeah. I guess Body's not. not into it. Um, but I am also, you know, very, very well aware of what happens when I do not fuel or hydrate on that 25 mile run. And it's not right. good. <laughs> and that's your, that's one of your data points. Um, another concept that is used in intuitive eating across populations, but I think is even more relevant with athletes is there is a concept called practical hunger. So practical hunger is, I don't feel physiologically hungry, but I know that I'm going to pay for it later if I don't eat now. So my, I feel like my most common example of practical hunger is if I have a morning that's particularly booked with clients. Um, I actually like to like have my coffee and like wait a little bit before breakfast, but you know, say I have an eight, nine, 10, 11 o'clock client. I can't wait till breakfast because when that I'm in session with that 11 o'clock client, I'm really hungry. I'm not focused. Like I'm a little bit irritable. I feel myself being rushed in the session. And so while yes, I might not be hungry at 7am, I know I'm going to pay for it if I don't act on that practical hunger. And that is really what we work with a lot in training or like immediately before and after exercise. I think a lot of people like they don't have to think about practical hunger so much just in their like normal day to day. Um, But in sport, it's like, all right, what nutrition decision am I going to do now that I'm going to thank myself for later? Like I hate goo. I hate gels. I am like really weird and bring like fruit roll-ups and stuff that really doesn't travel well when I'm riding. And it's been a learning curve for a long time, even though I'm a dietitian. And I've had to just learn, like, I don't like gels, but they're just really light and easy to carry. I don't want to eat this at this moment, but I also don't want to get dropped in 45 minutes. Mm -hmm. I like that. Yeah. Um, also, Welsh's like fruit gummy snacks, by the way, fantastic. If you like oh, fruit roll-ups, they're so yeah. good. Um. <laughs> yeah, I love those gummies. I love that they're cheap from the grocery so store. So cheap. I'm big fan of, remember when Pop-Tarts Pop came out with those Pop-Tart bites? Yes. So much more transportable. The number of crumbled up Pop-Tarts I have sitting in my like food bin right now I is- eat them because how am I going to eat them when I'm like hanging on for dear life and eating my stem in a group ride? I'm not. Yeah. Exactly. And even for breakfast, like when you're trying to just quickly eat one pre-ride, you're like, oh no, this is just like crumbs now. This is a sad breakfast. Mm -hmm. And it's, and that's another, again, intuitively driven decision. While I know Pop-Tarts are a super easy source of carbs, I also know that I'm not going to eat them when they're in this state. What is the nutrition decision I can make that, yeah, maybe it's not the most perfect nutrition solution, but it is the one that I'm actually going to use. Like, mm-hmm. is that uncrustable? All right, let's do that. Is that like pa- like three packets of oatmeal that you like mix with water and eat dry? Like kind of gross. But if you're camping and you have no other choice or if you're bikepacking, like, yeah, we have to. And so mm-hmm. I think practical nutrition plays a really, really, really big role in um, sports nutrition. Mm-hmm. But I think another one that becomes really important is that uh, making peace with food and challenging the food police. Ooh, yeah. Yeah. And it's actually funny. I was, the way I kind of wanted to go from there is thinking about, there are sort of two different types of athletes that I, I have observed after rides, after coaching a lot of camps. 
there's the the one athlete that's going to lean into like the pizza and the beer and just like go ham on this yeah exactly exactly and then there's the other athlete with the like I'm gonna have this big salad and by big salad I mean it's like kale with like a drizzle of balsamic vinegar not great not great like like and both of those people are making what they would argue with you are intuitive choices that they have made so I think intuitive is often like a cop out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, <laughs> that's sort of where I was going with this. Like, like a very we, primally driven, that? it's like a very primally driven urge that I think people call intuitive because they have a, a drive to eat it. But the intuitive piece is like, we're also using our head. Like our head is part of our body. We're listening to our body. So I'll talk about the pizza situation first and then the kale salad. Perfect. Um. So the pizza situation that is super common in athletes. And I really think, well, I think there's a couple reasons. I think one, I mean, if people don't eat enough on their rides, like, yeah, they're going to be starving. And unfortunately one, one of the reasons we want people to eat when they're hungry is once your blood sugar gets to a certain point, you actually don't make the hormone that makes you feel full. So when people are like, Oh my gosh, when I get really hungry, I eat so much. And then I feel so full that like, I don't realize I'm full until I'm stuffed because mm-hmm. you didn't make the hormone that made you feel full. It's a survival mechanism. So the best way to avoid that is to not like get into that massive deficit in the first place. So that's one piece of it. But I think another really big piece of it actually does kind of apply to the whole make peace with food and challenge the food police. So I think a lot of people have like a list of foods that they're only allowed to eat when they do a long ride. They've earned it. And so even if they're not in the mood for it, they're going to do it because it's like a last supper mentality. That's another mm-hmm. term. If I don't have it now, I'm not going to get it until I do another long ride. Right. Yeah. I couldn't possibly have it for dinner in the right. evening. It has right. to be like, now. With, yeah, exactly. So there is a term called habituation. Habituation is used in like various behavioral um, modalities, but we use it a lot with intuitive eating. And the idea of habituation is the more you incorporate something into your diet as normal, like the less allure it has. So oftentimes, like you'll see like a lot of people do like either cheat days or I just think for a lot of cyclists, like their long run or sorry, long ride day is a cheat day. And that really does set you up for like that binge restrict cycle. Like I'm mm-hmm. going to eat everything super cleanly. I hate the word clean eating, but I, just I was just like, going to say, we're going to have to stop so we can both just go like, yeah, like I clean. <laughs> just so everyone that's listening, I think it's dumb, but I'm going to eat everything quote unquote perfectly. And then I've earned this day to eat whatever I want. And I'm giving myself permission to not feel guilt about it because I've done this like very long ride. Mm-hmm. Once you've adopted some habituation into your life, so for example, like, can we have pizza on like a Wednesday and like put a nice big salad with some chickpeas with it to give you some extra protein and some good olive oil because it'll add some fat to make you feel full? And we're not starving going into it when we eat it. Pizza is still going to be awesome. It's still going to be delicious. It's also a great fuel because it's got protein, fat, and carbs in one package. But we're not going to feel that like last supper feeling of like, oh, my God, I have to eat this right now or else 
I won't get a chance to do it later. Mm-hmm. And I think some people do that with store stops too. Like this is the only time I'm allowed to have like chips or Snickers or like <laughs> whatever the various, like the sundry store stop fair is. Yeah. Like, once you start eating these foods, they kind of get less exciting and they're always going to be good. Like there, and there's certain foods that we have like an association with. Like I love plain Lay's. Like, I don't know what it is about plain Lay's, but I love them. That's never going away. But like, if I have plain Lay's in front of me, it's like not that big of a deal because they are, there's not a moral attachment or like this forbidden and therefore mystified feeling with them. So that's, I think where people get the idea that you need to just eat everything you want because for a period of time when someone is starting their intuitive eating journey, as we'll say, you do have to kind of remove all food rules, rules, and that can lead to some eating past comfort. However, I think people are like, oh my gosh, if I have no food rules, I'm just going to eat pizza and French fries and ice cream constantly. No, I think you learn pretty quick that that's not going to work. And like, it loses its appeal. I mean, just think about like, have you ever been on a vacation where you just are like out of your normal eating pattern? Oh, yeah. And then you come home and you're like, all I want is some freaking salmon and brown rice and broccoli. Yep. Yep. That's intuitive. E- like that's, that is your intuitive eating kicking in and identifying like, all right, I had these really indulgent foods. They were great. And my body also needs fiber because I'm constipated as hell. I'm bloated. Like <laughs> I'm not getting enough protein in my meals. I'm feeling really full, but then somehow hungry an hour later, like my eating has been super irregular. I need to get on a more regular schedule. Like your intuitive like mindset kicks in. And so I think people are really afraid to remove those food rules because initially oftentimes like you do overindulge, but you almost have to have that overindulgence in order to like lose the allure of these foods that are like, I guess that you're vulnerable around. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe another misconception around intuitive eating is that it it throws you out of any kind of routine. Like you, you right. no longer have sort of your like go-to breakfast. You wake up and are like, what do I feel like having? And it has to be this <laughs> whole like lengthy, like discussion with yourself and like, you know, feeling into that. And then like lunch is the same thing. And everyone's like, I don't have time for that. No, absolutely not. Like we need to be practical here. (laughs) But I feel like what you just said was, yeah, you kind of almost, it helps you figure out what routine does make sense for you and which meals do feel good and like where those, those lines are for you. Right. And some people, like there are some people that I say some people, me, literally eat the same thing for breakfast every morning, not because it's a rule, but because it removes a part of the day when you have decision fatigue. Mm -hmm. We make so many decisions in a day. It's been well-documented that we only have, we have a finite amount of willpower as we go through the day to make decisions. If you're someone who values ease and convenience over novelty and variety, you might do really well having the same like avocado toast with egg on it every day. And that rule is also flexible. So if you get bored of it, you can change it. Mm -hmm. And so it's so interesting. Like, I think a lot of people that are like true intuitive eaters, their food choices, if you were just an outsider looking in, 
might look like, oh, this person's like on a clean eating diet or a whole 30 diet, but the, um, the motivation and the intention behind it is totally different. So you don't like resent that food choice. You don't have that internal turmoil of like, oh, like another day of this oatmeal or overnight oats when I really, really wish I could have these donuts instead. Like, no, you've tried the donuts. You know that the donuts are really delicious and maybe great for mid ride, but like definitely are going to have you hungry in 30 minutes to an hour afterwards. That's why you choose the oatmeal because you have three kids and you can make it the night before and it's easy and it keeps you full. And like in this season of life, that's what works for you. And if it stops working for you, we can be flexible enough to then reimagine like mm-hmm. your new structure. And I think that's a, a big word in the intuitive eating world is just flexibility. Like mm-hmm. we need to be able to adapt. We need to be okay if you have this really great structure, but you go on a road trip and you do have to stop and get lunch on the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Love that. Now, when people come to you and kind of want to shift into this, this way of eating, do you notice that most of them are coming from backgrounds of like the super restrictive diets that they're like coming off of or haven't had success with, or like who, who do you typically work with? Um, so I get the gamut. I work I work with like my niche, my specialty is eating disorders. So just by nature, I'm known in the eating disorder community. I get referrals from individuals with eating disorders um, or like, you know, have had an eating disorder in the past couple of years, never really got treatment, but also never really established like peace with food. So I see a lot of those individuals, but I also in the past like two to three years, have noticed an influx in just people that are chronic dieters, like kind of have always been on and off a diet and have never really felt like, like have always felt like their food patterns are really chaotic. Mm -hmm. Um, And they come to me not really knowing what they're looking for, but knowing they want a non-diet nutrition counselor because they've tried all the diets and many people are just triggered by the whole thought of weight loss and all that, which is 100% understandable. Um, So a lot of those like ex-chronic dieters who are just ready to like learn something new. And I think those people, like a lot of them are very, very successful with intuitive eating. I always try to set the expectation early that it really is like kind of a long process, Um, especially if you are coming from that state of deprivation because you your, your body isn't going to be super reliable if you're coming out of deprivation, because when it does finally have access to food, it does have that survival mechanism encoded where you are going to be like particularly driven to like overeat. And that gets corrected, but it takes a lot of patience and it also takes a lot of self-compassion. Yeah. Yeah. And on the flip side of like the, the chronic dieters, I don't, would you have a, do you ever see people who really haven't been leading a particularly, we'll we'll say healthy lifestyle. I'm not even going to go into clean, but like, you know, who legitimately do have, have weight to lose, have like health issues because of that. And, you know, have maybe tried like restrictive diets and just haven't been able to stick with them. Like, Mm -hmm. can this actually be like a helpful way for someone who struggles with like, (laughs) 100 percent um yeah so in intuitive eating has i should i feel like i should have mentioned this at the beginning of the podcast but has a very strong empirical base um for health outcomes so the difference in 
like if someone came to see me versus someone went to see someone that was weight focused, some of our interventions might not be that different. But if we're focusing on health behaviors in order to improve health outcomes, there's a whole modality called health at every size. And it's there's a lot of overlap between intuitive eating and health at every size. I won't go too much into it, but a health at every size framework has us focusing on health behaviors rather than weight loss. So for example, we might have an individual who binges four to five times a week. Um, they really struggle with feeling out of control around food. Their blood sugar is very irregular because of the binging. If they're coming in my office and I'm saying, all right, we need to see you losing a pound a week to call this successful. I mean, people's bodies have adapted in a pretty sophisticated way to resist weight loss. So sometimes, sometimes that individual might see weight loss. Sometimes they won't. And so if they're coming to me and we're getting their eating consistent and we're adding protein when they eat and we're adding fiber when they eat and we're getting our carb intake consistent rather than like not at all. And then all at once that blood sugar will get better. Their weight may or may not reflect that change. And so if we're being weight centric, a lot of people like, I mean, the, the data shows that people are just less often to maintain the health behavior if they're focused on weight as the primary outcome versus being focused on health outcome. So for example, A1C um, or, you know, number of binge episodes per week, um, those measurable like health outcomes and health behaviors just tend to bring about like greater longevity in your behavior change. Mm-hmm. And so that's the whole, I think people get like weird and defensive about health at every size too. And they're like, oh, you mean to say like, you don't want people to be healthy. And I'm like, I'm literally never said that literally the exact opposite of that literally phrase exact actually. but like um, you know it's it's one of those things where we're going to treat someone well regardless of their weight mm-hmm. and we're also going to give a individual in a fat body or a large body i use fat in a non-derogatory way um the same treatment that we would give an individual in a small body mm-hmm. and so uh, intuitive eating like it it will help reduce binge episodes. It will help increase the diversity of your diet. Like the whole joyful movement component is all about getting people to move their bodies in a way that doesn't feel like an obligation and is in a way that's going to be like more likely to be sustainable. It's not perfect. I feel like there's definitely people probably listening to this that have like tried and failed or sorry, tried and not felt successful with intuitive eating. Um, but it's, it's definitely a good modality for individuals that have like, um, like, you know, metabolic conditions and mm-hmm. chronic health conditions as well. Yeah. And I think what you you mentioned there about weight just not being a metric that really even makes sense to measure because it it isn't like it. It's such an outcome that you almost can't control versus some of these more controllable things. Like you say, a number of binge episodes or like, yeah, like number of like meals that you're happy about. Like, yeah. Number so of meals that have a fruit things. or vegetable in them. Yeah, so many better things to be tracking versus getting on the scale every day for sure. And I think that's that's applicable to athletes as well. Uh, we we always reference when one of the first episodes we did like six years ago with was with this Olympic coach Dean Golich, and one thing he said that just stands out to us every time is like, do the training and you know eat reasonably, and the weight's going to work itself out. But if you focus on the weight, you're probably going to be neglecting all of these other factors that are going to end up screwing you in the long term, basically. Right. Yeah. I I think 
there's been so many athletes who have spoken about like, I mean, what athlete hasn't been through some version of disordered eating or eating disorder, but they do have that performance bump in the beginning when they're mm-hmm. at low race weight. It's yeah. the longevity that suffers either yeah. the physical burnout, the mental burnout, the increased risk of injury. Um, there's, there's just an expiration date on a weight that is very clearly like artificially suppressed. Yeah. And this is actually something I had on my list that I wanted to talk to you about, because I think this is such a, an interesting and very thorny topic for sure. For Um, sure. You have, you know, we now have so many professional athletes who are out there and are sharing their, you know, their eating disorder journey or their disordered eating they've had in the past and, you know, kind of all of the negatives about it. Um, And I think that's great, but I also see it as sort of problematic is not the right word, but it, it worries me because I think the problem is while they don't mean to say it this way, the message comes across to, I think some younger men yeah. and women that, Oh, when they were really fast and they were winning the things, it was while they had the eating disorder. Right. And then they were in recovery from it and stopped being fast. And then sometimes it's even, you even see like cycles of it where then the athlete comes back like another couple of years later and says the same thing. And like, that's when they made their recovery and came back in the sport, it turned out they were still struggling with the eating disorder. And I think it's so important that they're sharing it, but it also makes me so worried because like kids are seeing the the message that like, oh, that early weight loss actually like did give them the bump in performance. Talking about eating disorders is so hard if you, if you don't know what can be super triggering to people, I think something really important about what you just talked about was the fact that that athlete was looking back on their peak and like kind of their heyday. It just shows that the longevity wasn't there. Mm -hmm. And that the breakdown did happen. Like they were after the fact being like, yeah, I was my fastest. And then look what happened. I tanked. Like there's usually an impetus that brings people to seek eating disorder treatment. Mm -hmm. Like rarely, unless you have a family member or loved one, like forcing someone into treatment, rarely does someone present at least to outpatient being like, I want to work on my relationship with sorry, I want to heal my eating disorder, but everything's going really well. <laughs> so something had to happen to that athlete to make them seek out treatment and or recovery. And yeah, when you're recovering from an eating disorder, like your ass is not performing anything because all of that like muscular healing is extremely energy demanding and like you're not going to be performing. And people do like you hold on, you have edema when you start, like when you refill your glycogen stores, like- mm-hmm you people often distribute weight um irregularly when they when they weight restore so they'll get it around their middle first and then they'll get in their legs and like then like their arms will be really um thin before they lean out and so people look out of proportion like it's very normal and i i think it's not that surprising that like in recovery that person didn't do well and then that's why relapse is so hard or sorry so common because recovery is long. Mm-hmm. But I think the payoff is what was like happening for that person while they were having all of this success. Um, mm-hmm. Were they okay? 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And probably not is, is definitely the answer. Um, but it's, yeah, I, I, I struggle with it because often the images that get shared are like these, you know, race winning and like everything looks amazing in the photo. And if you just kind of read it on surface level, like rarely are they sharing like the, the picture where like everything looks like crap. It's always like this like really happy moment. Yeah, they're running the caption through and it's the like, tape with their arms up. Yeah. And then the caption is like, this is like the lowest point in my life. Yeah, and no, if, tell, show us, show us. I want to yeah. see. Like if you can read that and really like internalize it, I think that's like, that's what should be happening. But I just worry that a lot of like younger audience sees the picture and is like, oh, they were winning and they had this. So like, one plus one equal like it just kind of almost presents like oh that's that's how they won it was they had this like this eating disorder that like therefore that's how you win and I think like you know we're learning and I I think it's getting better with like youth coaches and stuff that are kind of showcasing that there's the better way to do it but I think between the messaging you know that I'm sure a lot of collegiate coaches are still dropping on that 1200 calories a day I was wondering like is that still happening I need I need um like a spy to tell me if that's still going down. You know what? Because I do feel like it's kind of out of vogue, especially after like the Alberto Salazar stuff came to the surface. But I'm pretty sure it still runs thick. It still runs thick, I think. I was uh, helping out with a, a cross-country team a few years back. Um, and the coaches, like totally well-meaning, awesome guys. And I just remember them being like, okay, so like no Halloween candy till after after States. Like, just like, no, you know, no junk. And you're just like, wait, what? (sighs) No. And And also like, so it's not even like a calorie count or anything like that. It's just these very pervasive messages of like, no junk food or, you know. What's on your list that you can and can't have. Mm -hmm. And it's like, God, eating a couple pieces of Halloween candy is going to be far better than the binge that happens when you finally get around that candy and you've like, you know, feel like you're in a safe place where your coach can't find out. Yeah. That mini Milky Way is not, uh, not costing you any seconds yeah, on the mile like, here. I think the Twix is, is not the problem here. Yeah. So I would say the messaging, even if the coach isn't intentionally doing it, it's just so deeply ingrained that I'd say most coaches still have like a little of it, even if they don't mean to. Well, and I'm sure the coaches have it themselves too. Yeah. Cause that's how they that's how they've been. Like, yeah. that's how they learned. And also to give high school coaches some like, you know, bit of kudos here. They're also all volunteers that are like English right. teachers. Like they were not trained in sports <laughs> nutrition or so anything true. like that. Like they're just, they're just normal people tra- yeah. that like volunteered for this job to make it, you know, to add an extra like couple grand to their salaries. Yeah. Not- thinking about my high school volleyball coach who was also my English teacher. Yeah. Not a licensed expert here. No, Miss, Miss Herbert probably had never played volleyball before. Yeah, exactly. She wanted drama club, but like that was taken. Yeah, she, so she, she got volleyball. Got volleyball and now she has all these girls like bitching constantly. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I think it's it's very hard to be a young athlete these days and and not have that messaging come in. Um and yeah, I mean, I was just gonna ask sort of generally with athletes and body image, like, you know, what what are you seeing as you're, you know, dealing with people and you know, kind of out in this in this world here? Yeah. Body image is a really tough topic for athletes. I mean, athletes across the lifespan, but especially like 
your high teens, younger twenties who already are struggling with like many having just, there's a lot of different, different venues for you to compare yourself. Yeah. Um, And if you're great in one venue, you're probably not great in the other, right? Like what's, what's trendy as far as, uh, you know, on on TikTok, like fashion and body image and stuff (laughs) is totally different than what you're supposed to be to be like a great soccer player or track runner. So you can't win. (laughs) Yeah, I think there is a lot. I mean, a lot of, especially in cycling, people feel like there's a body type they need to be in order to like, quote, be a cyclist. But someone somewhere told me in my eating disorder training, something that really stuck with me. And that was like, you also have to work with your genetics. Like, so I'm an ex-soccer player. I have big thighs. I have super muscular legs. Like I was good at cyclocross and punchy crits and things that required a lot of anaerobic power. Like if I woke up one day and was like, all right, I'm ready to be a climber. Like I'm ready to go win Southern Cross, which is like a big gravel race in Georgia, goes up this very steep climb. Like even if I did have my nutrition just pitch perfect, I wouldn't have the body type of the climbers that are winning those races. Also, like, Southern Cross sucked. That was the hardest race ever. I think I raced it like it? ten years. Yeah, like ten years ago. Oh, bless my husband. And I used to have a cabin, like basically brutal. <laughs> so, yeah, we used to go there all the time. But like, I, I mean, you have to kind of work with what you have. Like people, yes, your weight can fluctuate, perhaps three to five percent throughout like the year based on the season you're in. But like, you're probably not going to fully like reconstruct your body type. And so we really do need, I mean, it's tough to say pick a sport based on your body type because most of us like fall into our sport when we're young and or like, you know, choose cycling because of a midlife crisis. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Understandable. Most of our listeners. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Can we choose a discipline within cycling or running that like either works with our body type or if it doesn't work with our body type, can we be okay with just not being the best? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which one brings you joy or which right. one works best with your body type? Right. Like- You're just not going to like fully reconstruct your genetic blueprint. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's, I mean, that is really hard for people to swallow, especially when you have like collegiate racers who really are told they have to race every discipline. Yeah. Um. So, I mean, I guess that recommendation only goes so far, but like usually what happens when people severely restrict is like they don't even lose the amount of weight that like, if you put in a calculator, it would say, because your body has really good adaptive mechanisms to hold on to, to fat when it does sense that it's being deprived. So oftentimes people have that initial weight loss and then it plateaus and then their weight starts to creep back up again. They feel like they've failed. No, your body just, like learned to live with less calories. It got more efficient in order to Mm. restore that metabolism. You actually like, you know, counterintuitively have to eat more. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Perfect. And okay. The last thing I want to ask is a very practical thing. Feelings on food tracking. Cause I feel like this is a very interesting, like weird area that like kind of fits into intuitive eating and then kind of absolutely doesn't. So (laughs) Food tracking can definitely have a role in intuitive eating uh, to a degree. My fitness pal, I have never, I have yet to meet someone that has a good relationship with my fitness pal. 
Yeah. I think some food tracking as part of that data collection that we were talking about earlier can actually be really informative. So again, for example, I tried Kodiak cakes instead of oatmeal. How did I fare? Like, did I feel like it was really heavy in my stomach? Did it feel like it like lasted me a little bit longer? That type of information is actually really helpful because I feel like we we think that we can just like go through the day and remember, but it's, it is very hard to remember the connections between like, all right, this day I had a faster tempo run and I did better with a smoothie because it's better to digest. However, that smoothie is not going to work if I've got to work all morning and can't have a snack. I think that tracking is actually really, really helpful. And one of the things I recommend to people um, kind of a food and feelings journal. And like, that doesn't necessarily have to mean you like are really deeply delving into your feelings, although you can, but literally like, I noticed I've been more constipated this week. Like, what did I, what did I eat or not eat? Mm -hmm. Um, That can be super helpful. I feel like a really good rule of thumb for tracking food is like, don't be weird about it. Like, don't make it weird. Like you don't have to pull out your phone and take out, take a picture when you're like, at a brewery after a ride with friends getting chicken fingers. Like, don't be weird about it. Don't make it obsessive. Just use it as another source of information that you can draw from in order to like overall strategize what works for you. Mm -hmm. Love it. So good. Okay. Before we wrap up, let everybody know where they can find you, where they can get in touch, because I feel like you are going to have a lot of people who are very intrigued (laughs) by this concept. Yeah. So my practice is called Rooted Nutrition and Counseling. So that website is rootednutritionandcounseling.com. I'm on Instagram at root underscore ed nutrition. Um, I post a lot of cringy reels. So prepare yourself. yeah. And all my contact info is on my website. Um, and yeah, I think that's, that's all you need to find me. I'm pretty easy to find. Amazing. Awesome. Well, now I need to go look at all of these really cringy reels. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, thank you so much for making this conversation happen today. I think this is just such an interesting field and something I think a lot of people now kind of have a little bit more awareness about and hopefully are a little more intrigued by, because I know, you know, so many people we talked to have tried so many different mm-hmm. modalities of eating. And I feel like this is just such a good set of set of rules that aren't rules to, to yes. live by. Guidelines. We guidelines. love calling them guidelines. I love it. I love it. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Carolyn. It was so great meeting you. And hopefully we'll see you in real life at a race one of these days. Yes, I really hope so. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Consummate Athlete Podcast. If you want to hear more training, racing, and endurance sport advice, make sure you subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating and review. You can also subscribe to our newsletter at consummateathlete.com for a weekly dose of inspiration and advice straight to your inbox.